0: This is Andy Wakefield, and this is the Andy Wakefield podcast. This is a place where stories are told that have never been heard before.
1: My name is Laurie Gregory. Welcome to the Andy Wakefield podcast. Hi, Andy.
0: Hi, Laurie. Great to be back.
1: Episode what is this, number
0: five, five, five of our podcast, and how we grow. Back we are in Topanga, sunny Topanga in troubled California.
1: Boy, it's really the truth, isn't it? It's kind of ground zero. Well, not even kind of. I think we really are at ground zero here in terms of the health freedom movement in the United States, and we're seeing so much in that space with regard to parental rights and people really starting to understand that they're they're health rights are being chipped away at. And no one knows that more than people in California for those who are paying attention.
0: That's right. We've met thousands of people over the last several months from all walks of life who are deeply, deeply concerned and have almost in many respects left it too late to take action. They haven't, but that's the perception. What do we do? And many of them are simply bailing on the state, getting out.
1: For sure. It's kind of that boiled frog syndrome where people are kind of waking up and going, oh, no, I'm boiling. It's like, yeah, well, you've been boiling for like four years, but but better late than never. You know, and, and I have faith. I'm hoping that there will be some a patriotic wave to take back California because we've watched this this whole health freedom narrative kind of evolve from like December of 2014 when we saw the measles craze ramp up at Disneyland, right? So that was like four years ago. I mean, we're, we're that far into it. But that really seems to be this kind of catalyst that they're using this whole, that's when, in my mind, this whole measles craze kind of went off the rails.
0: That's right. we'll talk about that today. That's one of the great mysteries of this whole episode in history. of How did that come about? How did, what is the truth behind the Disneyland outbreak? And we'll be talking about that a little bit later in this podcast. But what I want to do today is to try and condense some of the complex <laughs> arguments that are raging about things like herd immunity, what it really is and what it isn't. Because this is the rod that's being used to beat the back of the public by public health, by doctors, by politicians, without ever understanding what it is they're really talking about.
1: Sure. That this, you've this, got uh,
0: to maintain herd immunity and measles is a killer disease and it'll come back and run riot amongst our children and kill them and we need to stop that and anti-vaxxers are to blame for measles coming back. They so, really
1: push that, don't they? this the, her, the herd immunity, the community immunity, all these ridiculous little slogans and phrases and all designed to kind of put us into this frenzy where we've all got to go rush out and get three MMRs to make sure, right? But you've been looking at measles for 30 years, right?
0: 30 years. That's
1: yeah. remarkable. So I I consider you to be one of, if not the world's leading expert on this topic. And we're we're getting so much information and misinformation, and the headlines are just getting ridiculous. Can you can you kind of help help us walk through all of this and understand what
0: this all means? Again, I'll I'll, I'll set the scene for this. Is that I had moved away from being intimately involved in the science and the medical science behind measles. I'd studied it for a very long time, but I got into filmmaking and part of the the latest film, I was offered some funding for the film on the basis that I gave a lecture, 40 lectures online about vaccine safety and efficacy. And I wasn't equipped to do that. I know a lot about measles, but I don't know a lot about many of the other vaccines. So... I was disinclined to do it. And then I changed my mind when I said, look, I'll do it just about measles. If I can focus on measles as a prototypic live viral vaccine, and uh, one which has really educated our immune system, one which tells us measles as a disease tells us so much about man's coevolution with infectious agents in a, in a, in a global sense, then I will focus on that and I'll happily do it. So mm. that's what I did. And I went back and reopened the the textbooks and and started looking at this again. And I came about two thirds of the way through the lecture series. I came to a terrifying conclusion about where we are and about what the experts on the other side, the public health officers, the vaccinologists, the virologists, what the smart ones amongst them actually know, what they realize and why there is this extraordinarily aggressive agenda to mandate vaccines for everybody in the world, cradle to grave, with no exceptions. Why is there this massive push by the industry and its cohorts amongst public health officials and senior virologists and politicians, people they own effectively. Why is there this push to mandate
1: Yeah, because it's kind of a fevered pitch, isn't it? It is. And and I I was talking about this the other day with a friend and wondering if maybe the fact that we're at a 37-year birth rate low in America is part of it, because... There are less eyes on the childhood vaccine schedule now than there ever have been in thirty seven years because it's the lowest birth rate for Americans in thirty seven years but it's not really that simple is it
0: it's it's complicated and it, and it um let me try and let me let let me go through it and to try and understand it let's go back to man's interaction with microbes really from the very first time that we recognized them and that was you know through people like Louis Pasteur working in france and Louis Pasteur was one of the fathers of of modern vaccinology. Louis Pasteur made a very interesting observation about man's relationship with microbes. It was a question of perception. He said this, he said, if it's a terrifying thought that life is at the mercy of the multiplication of these minute bodies referring to microbes, it is a consoling hope that science will not always remain powerless before such enemies. So. Here we have the father of vaccinology characterizing infectious agents, microbes, as the enemy. And that really was where it stood. They were at the time. The perception was correct. They were the enemy. Infectious disease was rampant and was killing many, many people, young and old, uh, in Europe at that time. Hmm. But was, did that perception change? Did it, was it sustained? And we now live in the era of the microbiome where we realize how important our bacteria, our microbes are for our very survival, for our evolution survival. That's such a
1: huge shift, even in Western medicine, because I know that all the doctor conferences, right, that doctors go to for continuing, you know, CMEs, continuing medical education that they have to do to keep their license. It's all in the past 18 months been completely about the microbiome. So even Western medicine is starting to recognize is about having a good population of the good guys, right? In your microbiology of your body would serve to reason that that's also going to be part of your ability to fight an infection like measles or anything, right? So- yeah, I mean,
0: the, the, what, what we now know amongst the things that are emerging is that it's not just important for our gut health and our development of our immune system in the gut, of which, you know, that's 70% of our, body's immune system right there but mm. it's also essential for our thoughts
1: mm-hmm.
0: and our emotions and our brain development and neurological diseases and right. disease that we never thought were related to the gut itself but
1: that's kind of the front line isn't yeah, it, it. I mean, so no,
0: no man is an island you know yeah. we, we are dependent on this symbiotic relationship that we have with microbes so we now see microbes in a different way than did Louis Pasteur and his colleagues at the time. They're no longer the enemy. This perception, however, led to the discovery of things like penicillin by Sir Alexander Fleming at St. Mary's Hospital in 1928. And that led to the era of antibiotics. And the rhetoric was the same as we see now for vaccines. This was a medical miracle. Man had done in this great thing. We had discovered antibiotics. We were now going to control infection. And it was a miracle. And it was for a time. The perception was correct.
1: The light bulb is going off big time for me because it was like the greatest development in Western medicine, like in in the 20th century, right? Yeah. Or 19th century. It was a huge advance because it
0: changed the natural history of things like battlefield gangrene or neurosyphilis, which was syphilis was a major killer. That was called the big, the great pox. Mm. Smallpox was a smallpox. Syphilis was the great pox and people were dying in there and that was transformed by penicillin. Wow!
1: Um,
0: and, and things like uh, scarlet fever, which mm-hmm. we rarely hear about nowadays. So yeah. these disorders were susceptible to the antibiotics as they were at the time, and that was a miracle. But the miracle didn't last, and nor should we have expected it to last. And so now it's characterized as a nightmare. The miracle in less than a hundred years, the miracle has turned to nightmare. Why? Well, there are many reasons. One is that, for example, we've used antibiotics inappropriately. Mm-hmm that we've given them for the wrong indication because a, a child has a pink eardrum, he gets antibiotics, doesn't work. He's still fractured, still has a pink eardrum, never really had an infection in the first place,
1: Right.
0: had congestion, but no infection. So you're treating something that there's no infection. So even there. though the first round isn't you working, give
1: him another double dose. Double the dose, oh.
0: prolong the dose, change antibiotics, give them a more broad spectrum antibiotic and all of this, this Im- had an impact on the evolution of the, the microbes themselves. And I mean, it, while
1: you're wrecking the gut. That's the right. While kid, you're wrecking, right?
0: wrecking the immune system of the child and their own healthy microbiome is being ravaged by the antibiotic, you are also driving the organism towards resistance. Because mm. they're just mutating,
1: right, to, yeah. to outsmart the antibiotic.
0: And they can do that at an extraordinarily high rate. So they evolved very quickly, and what that led to is what we face now, and that's the what's called the end of modern medicine, the post-antibiotic apocalypse, and that is multi-resistant, highly dangerous organisms that are leading to hospitals having to close, prosthetic surgery having to stop, people dying. That's the, the superbug, right? Well, You're talking well, the about these superbugs, superbugs. We We're talking the MRSA. Superbugs.
1: I mean, I even was reading the other day that they swabbed airplanes and have found MRSA like all over airplanes. This stuff is everywhere, right? It's everywhere. It's, it's, not, and, it's and, unavoidable.
0: And now you reach the point where the, where the drug companies say, look, we're not going to investigate, put money into investigating new antibiotics anymore because by the time we bring them to market, the They've, bacteria, they they're already resistant. So Amazing. it's not worth our time. And so you're on your own. Yeah. So having contributed to this situation, having helped create the situation, the drug companies are now stepping away and leaving people to deal with it. On own. So it's, it's a, it, what it teaches, the lesson that we should have learned is that these the collective intelligence of these microorganisms the ability their ability to adapt to mutate to change but overall to survive because they will survive is extraordinarily powerful and to believe in our infinite arrogance as physicians or scientists that we can outwit these things was so flawed so deeply deeply flawed and so the question is the question is does the same pertain to the medical miracle of vaccines are ah. and bacteria and viruses able to outwit the immunity that vaccines produce? And the answer is absolutely yes, they are. This is the point I came to in the lecture that I was preparing and the realisation, not having consulted the literature for many years, not having kept up to date with it, this Mm -hmm. is the point that I came to, the understanding that I came to. And so this discussion we're having now is really a condensation of what I've learned after that, Mm -hmm. when I realised what might be going on. So let's go back and look at measles in the pre-vaccine era. This is the really, what, what, why why did we start vaccinating? Well, why, 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 why was every child in the world targeted for measles vaccination? And this came down to a, me, a meeting at the National Institutes of Health in the USA in 1961. And the people wanted, the vaccinologists, this new band of brothers, the vaccinologists, wanted to emulate the the success, the perceived success of, say, polio vaccine or smallpox vaccine, which they believed was a miracle.
1: They believed. They didn't know the real history of polio. So
0: can we do this for other infections? Can we do this for measles? Sure. Should we do this for measles? People think that there was consensus that we absolutely should because measles was a killer. No, it wasn't quite the opposite. There was huge dissent about the need or the wisdom for um universal measles vaccination at that time in 1961 and it really came from one of the world's leading microbiologists Sir Graham Wilson who was there from England and had written the definitive textbook on microbiology and was giving the keynote address to that meeting and he said this he said that measles is one of the inevitable but relatively unimportant diseases of childhood bear in mind this is 1961 in England one in 500,000 children dies during a measles attack. Now, his point is that surely it is better to try and understand what is different about that child Mm -hmm. who died than entertain the idea of universal vaccination for everybody to protect that one child from death. Right. If you can understand what's different about that child, you might be able to protect them in a different way surely that would be a a better approach. And in fact, he got support from John Enders. John Enders was the Harvard scientist who first isolated and characterized measles. He said a measles vaccine is only desirable if it confers immunity comparable to that afforded by the natural infection. And that's absolutely crucial. makes perfect sense. Understanding that. So it
1: has to be as effective as natural immunity, which you would incur... Normally, if you were infected, had your 10-day rash, and then you have lifelong immunity. That's right. That's that's essentially
0: what he was referring to. So it has to be as good as that. Yeah. What he was saying is that natural infection, one exposure, leads to lifelong immunity, and that is what measles must produce.
1: The vaccine. That's what the measles vaccine... Sorry, the vaccine must... Must mimic that.
0: Must mimic that, because if it doesn't, we're going to run into problems. So he knew. And so I'll characterize those problems, but what... The vaccinologists won the day. Those urging caution did not win the day because there was such a push to create a vaccine against measles. And so the vaccinologists won the day on several assurances. And the assurances were that one dose of a live measles vaccine would produce immunity in the vast majority of children to whom it was given. That one dose would produce immunity like natural measles infection for life, it would be lifelong. Number three is that it wouldn't cause death or brain damage or permanent injury. It should not be more severe than the the disease for which it was intended. The fourth is that there would be no spread of this live viral vaccine from people who've been vaccinated to those who were susceptible to measles. Now, that's a big call because, of course, you're giving a live virus. You're really mimicking a measles infection, albeit a mild one, in people who are given the vaccine. So saying it's not going to spread, well, that was a bold call for a start.
1: Because that, that's shedding, right? You have a live virus, you can, you shed, can shed it Absolutely. and spin off the microbe for yeah. two weeks after. Right? But they
0: assured us that that oh, would not happen. happen. That okay. wasn't going to happen. That the vaccine would never be required to be mandatory. There'd be no need for mandatory vaccination, and that eradication of measles worldwide using a live vaccine would happen not just as a matter of fact but rapidly. They would achieve eradication of measles rapidly. Those were the assurances upon which the vaccinologists won the day, and there was a push, therefore to move ahead for, with mandatory vaccination or with the production of a measles vaccine.
1: <laughs> were these vaccinologists from Merck or from any particular persuasion? No, these were all we doctors. doctors. These, these were all doctors. Were just,
0: these were public they, health doctors. and They weren't doctor, funded by
1: pharma. CDC. No, because Merck, time, you know, if it's 61. Now Merck is six years into the polio vaccine. And I'm just, you know, and that was really pushed by Merck.
0: I'm sure that the drug companies were instrumental in moving this along, but it was really driven by people like Langmuir, who was head of the the CDC at the time, advising JFK. Bobby's uncle, Bobby Bobby Kennedy Jr.'s uncle, uncle, right, got it. Langmuir was a major mover and shaker in this, but it really came, yes, from the vaccinologists. Now, who was pulling their strings? If anyone, I don't know, but it um, it wasn't the same situation as we face now, and that's led to some major problems that confront us now and the problems that confront us and to understand how we got to these problems we can we we can go into the coevolution of man and microbe but the vaccine isn't protecting the vaccine doesn't protect the vaccine has destroyed natural herd immunity real herd immunity and i'll explain what i mean by that the vaccine is actually causing me and worst of all we're now seeing the emergence just like the antibiotic and bacteria story, we're seeing the emergence of vaccine-resistant strain. So what happened? What happened back in history? What was the interaction between man and measles? Was it the killer disease that we were told it was? And you've heard Sir Graham Wilson said in 1961, one in 500,000 people in a developed country dies from this disorder. Up until 1920, in developed countries like the US and the UK, Measles was a major killer of children. 1,200 per million were dying during epidemics of measles. And beyond that point, there was an extraordinary fall in case fatality rate. Death rates from measles in children fell by 99.96% before the vaccine ever came in.
1: Was there a reason? I mean...
0: Well, there were many reasons. Many reasons for that. And I, they're, they're complex. And okay. they do, they're due to a combination of host factors, human factors, and microbial factors and the interaction between host and microbe and patterns of viral transmission. Nutritional status, other health conditions at the time. So mm-hmm. there were many, many factors that we can consider, but two are of key importance, and are, are, I'll describe those two. Okay. It was nothing to do with medicine, it was nothing to do with public health, and it was most certainly Not nothing to, do with, to do with the vaccine. Interesting. So what it means is that death from measles is the most serious outcome. So death is a good proxy for the severity of measles disease. What this means is that measles beyond 1920 in developed countries was becoming a dramatically milder and milder and milder disease. And indeed, if we'd not vaccinated, if we'd not introduced the vaccine, would that curve, that mortality curve, just have continued to zero? Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Would it have become no more than a mild tickly throat? Right. And that was the indication. But of course, we can't say that because we intervene, medicine intervened with vaccination. Mm -hmm. Now, two things, principally, it comes down to two things. Two elements were responsible for that decline in mortality, and that is natural herd immunity. Those are the elements of natural herd immunity. And the first is that one exposure to measles produces lifelong immunity. And interesting, this was first observed in the Faroe Islands, which were a sort of protectorate of Denmark. Uh, Way back, they discovered that there was an epidemic. Now, these Faroe Islands are islands, and they're far from anywhere. And to have an epidemic, there wasn't enough there weren't enough in the population to sustain the the circulation of measles, Mm -hmm. and so it would die out. You'd have an epidemic, and then 60 years later, someone would come back in, a sailor from Denmark with measles, and you'd have another epidemic. But in between, you'd have nothing, unlike countries like the UK and the US, where it would circulate continuously, and every two years, you'd have a spike of measles, but not in these isolated populations in islands. And what they found in in the Faroe Islands is that there was one epidemic, and then there was another epidemic 60 years later. And when they studied those in the later epidemic, they found the only ones who didn't develop measles were the people who were old enough to have experienced the previous epidemic.
1: Because they had antibodies. And right? they had they lifelong had immunity. immunity. So that
0: one exposure all those years Did ago, decades and decades ago, had protected them from this most recent epidemic. And this was work was done by a chap called Parnum from Denmark. And so this was really the beginning of our understanding of the idea that one dose of measles protects you for life. Mm -hmm. Now, measles infects children and measles infection in children occurs because it's the first time really that a susceptible population come together in community, be that schools or playgrounds, and there's intimate interaction, playing and fighting or whatever it is. And so it's a perfect medium in which the the, the virus like measles can spread, and you know, you've got kids, <laughs> you've got yeah. a child, and he's he goes to school it's and he gets sick, and he comes crazy. in and goes, that, This is this is <laughs> but what, that's what they're supposed that's to what do, that's how that's, their immune that's, system that's grows. What, that's right? what happens. and so and so we had this situation where one dose of measles in childhood protected you lifelong. Mm-hmm. Why was that important in natural herd immunity? Why, because measles is more severe when you're an adult, if you get measles when you're an adult, the outcome is likely to be more severe, sure, more dangerous when you're an adult, That's but true. one exposure in childhood protects you against that. You will not get measles as an adult. You are protected from getting it during that critical period. Why? Because you've had it as a child and developed lifelong immunity. Yeah. The other element of this is passive maternal immunity, is that mothers who've had natural measles give excellent immunity to their babies, either in the womb or through breast milk.
1: You call that placental protection, right? Yeah,
0: transplacental transfer of antibodies. So
1: across the placenta yeah. in utero, yeah. you're getting some antibodies if, if the baby's growing in a mother who has been exposed to natural measles. Okay, yeah. got it. And through breast milk. And through right? breast
0: milk. So the baby is protected through that other critical period, the first year of life. And we know that measles experienced by babies in the first year of life is much more severe with a higher mortality and a much worse outcome. So nature has constrained the age of infection to childhood when measles is least severe Mm -hmm. by one, producing lifelong protection that stops you getting measles as an adult, Mm -hmm. and mothers who've had measles giving very good protection to their babies in the womb and in breast milk, protecting them under the age of one during that other critical period. So. The vast majority of the population experience measles in childhood when it's least severe and they develop lifelong immunity.
1: So there's two really vulnerable points of time. Our most vulnerable members of our population are are the the young, the infants, the babies and the elderly. That's right. So really, nature has designed a wonderful system to protect us transplacentally and with breast milk for that vulnerable baby phase. And then getting the exposure naturally as a child, you then have lifelong immunity that protects you as an adult.
0: Absolutely correct. And yes. we
1: have messed all of that up with this, with this vaccine. Well, that's the concept, second part right? of the story
0: that we will be coming to because this is an extraordinary effect. Now, I want to underscore this because that effect, that natural constraint of measles to an age when it was least severe really has produced a dramatic effect in terms of declining mortality and morbidity from measles that is natural herd immunity. That was man coming to terms with the infection. The infection coming to terms with man, because the infection doesn't want to kill its host. Sure. We have to understand that. The it's infection semiotic, thrives
1: right? everybody when needs people everybody. don't <laughs> die but
0: can spread it to the next person. Sure. They don't want people dying. No, because they so, lose the host. So. That's right. And so the natural coevolution of man and infection is that the disease becomes milder and milder and milder. So both survive so that both can continue. Fascinating. So that all changed. That all changed. That led us into, inappropriately, as many argued, including Sir Graham Wilson and the man who discovered measles measles himself, John Enders, that led us into the vaccine era where we are now. And the question is, what has happened? What happened as a consequence of introducing something about which we knew very, very little. But again, in our exquisite arrogance oh, for sure. and ignorance, we believed we could take from an infected individual, we could grow in the laboratory, we could mutate and adapt and exploit that infectious agent to control the disease in a population. How bold an assumption. That is extraordinary. But that's exactly what happened. And the question now is, what is the price? Because my experience of nature is that when you offend nature, when you make assumptions about nature, nature will come back to bite you in the ass.
1: With vehemence.
0: And it may not do so immediately, but it will do so. Yeah. And it will do so in a way that you couldn't predict, but is potentially devastating.
1: It's not nice to fool Mother Nature.
0: No, and you can't.
1: She doesn't like it. You
0: cannot fool Mother Nature. No. You think you might get away with it, but you're wrong.
1: So where do we go from here?
0: We go to the second part of the story.
1: So we'll tune in next week for part two. Thank you, Andy. You've been listening to the Andy Wakefield Weekly Podcast, a place where stories are being told that have never been heard before. This is a Seventh Chakra Films production in collaboration with Brick City Creative. Please follow and like us while you still can on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at 1986 The Act and soon on SPHERE.